podcast. The past fortnight has been one of tremendous turmoil in the UK. As the dust settles, we have a new king, a new prime minister, a new government cabinet, and a hugely uncertain economic outlook. As the Chancellor Kwasi Karteng unveils his mini budget and the Bank of England attempts to tackle inflation, Jeremy Moody, Secretary and Advisor to the CAAB, is here with me to examine the key fiscal changes ahead and their likely impact on the rural economy. Jeremy, thank you for joining me. So first things first, we have a new Prime Minister in the form of Liz Truss, who has set about a massive shake-up of the ministerial team. It's clear that this clean sweep heralds significant change in the government's approach. So in which departments do you see the biggest change happening and who are the new office holders to watch out for? Well, thanks, thanks very much for, for, for that question. It is indeed a major reconstruction that we've had of the government. There is almost no minister left in the job that they had even a month ago, let alone three months ago. And we see a complete change of commons ministers for DEFRA, so new Secretary of State, new Minister of State, two new parliamentary undersecretaries. Uh, we keep Lord Bennion in the Lords. We clearly have a new Chancellor, and he has been on his feet this morning, being very bold on front foot in terms of presenting the package that is, I think, to be seen very much as combined him and the Prime Minister. This, The package we've had this morning will be one that they have jointly set their hand to, perhaps more than is usually the case, and is set there to define the purpose of this government. Because, perhaps partly with the period of national mourning, where we have new ministers, as at levelling up or at DEFRA, they've not as yet had the time or the moment to be able to set out their thoughts as to where we're heading. And so very much for many of the departments, it's still a question of waiting and seeing. Now, we'll come on to the wider economy in due course, but from a farming perspective, what do you expect from the new team at DEFRA? I think what I see at the moment is that the new stance of the government focused very firmly on achieving an improved rate of growth, remedying the lack of growth that we've had for the last 15 years, will infuse the work of all the departments, including DEFRA. Under the Agricultural Transition Plan, DEFRA has its commitments to the Public Money for Public Goods programme, but it also has equally a commitment to achieving a more productive, a more efficient, a more competitive agriculture. And it may be that we come to see that as the new schemes have been developed under the previous administration, so now we will see more emphasis placed on the language of productivity coming through and so bringing to bear some of the work that we've done through the Agricultural Productivity Task Force and the other areas. And of course, so much of this is actually just consistent with a better environmental improvement. Better managed businesses tend to be better at delivering environmental performance, delivering profit, and so securing the future of the rural economy and the agricultural parts of this. But I I think the thrust of the government is down that road of economic improvement, and that will chime with the language of agricultural productivity still requiring major change. None of this is about the status quo, but it will be that language of how businesses are competitive for the future world environment. Yeah, You mentioned there the new Prime Minister has talked about the need for innovation in farming and seeking competitive advantage. How do you see that playing out? Again, I think it's a little early to tell. Uh, Those were fairly general remarks in her article in the farming press. The interest is, I think, expressed there in farming investment, in better businesses, and some of that flows through 
from the previous government's arguments in the food strategy white paper we had back in June. And that was beginning to look at some of the high investment ends in agriculture, even to the extent of the large glass houses that are going up in parts of the country, or at least were until the energy crisis, or indeed controlled environment farming. But the ability to invest in automation, partly for labour, but also for just sheer efficiency, uh, that I think is probably quite an important part of that vision. Where it plays in terms of developing our markets in the world, our potential for exports, again, I think we wait to see. Um, now, one of, moving on to the energy package, that was one of the first things that Liz Trust announced. Can you explain a little bit about what this package is likely to mean for businesses and individuals and whether anyone is likely to be left out in the cold? Yes, we have two packages that have been put together in quite considerable hurry. We shouldn't underestimate the amount of work that would have been underway before the new prime minister was appointed, but it's had then to be put together and presented really quite quickly. And the household package was issued just before the Queen died, and so the period of national mourning. And the business package came out just the other day after that. A lot of work still needs to be done. Essentially, what both packages do is that they limit the upward risk of further price increases. They don't reduce prices from where they are now, though some people on business contracts will see they they move to lower prices. But in essence, for a household which would have had an average bill under the cap of, say, £1,900, that would have gone significantly higher. That is capped at 2500 less the £400 payment that was anyway going to be made. So in practice for a household, for the first half of this winter, they'd be paying 2100 rather than 1900 But it stops it going to 3500 to 4500 to 5500 which is where world energy markets would have taken it. So it's not of itself necessarily making life easier. It's stopping it from getting dramatically worse. And the package for businesses, the separate package for businesses, and this covers schools and charities and all non-domestic organisations, is to be deliver an equivalent effect. And that is working through capping on wholesale prices for electricity and gas. The people who are then intended to be covered, but it's much harder to see how to do it, are those who are not, particularly those not dependent on main gas, not on main gas, who rely on oil um, for their heating, who pay their bills through their landlords, all the all the, like the non-standard situations. The business package overall, because it's quite complex, is going and, and necessarily complex, is going to take a few weeks and emergency legislation to get through. So it may not be in place at the beginning of November but it's intended to be retrospective to the 1st of October and to benefit anybody who's signed a contract since the 1st of April. So there will be people who are now looking at contracts that they've signed that will be for higher bills than they will finally wind up paying. But it will be some steps before that becomes finally clear. These are complex and difficult areas for a government that is moving very fast. Jacob Rees-Mogg has made it clear that we need to increase use of domestic fossil fuels to get over this energy crisis, including reintroducing fracking. So does this mean our net zero ambitions are just being thrown by the wayside? It doesn't look like it, despite the, the obvious and easy question to put. As part of the initial energy announcement by Liz Truss, 
a review has been set up to look at how the net zero target is to be met in ways that are consistent with business and growth. And the man chairing that review, which is to deliver by the end of this year, so really in the next three and a half, three months and not much more, uh, is Chris Skidmore, who is one of the Tory MPs most committed to the delivery of the net zero target. There are serious legal commitments here, domestic and international. And while I think we will see the Johnson government with hindsight as perhaps the greenest government this country has had to date, I think the government remains committed to doing this. What it is, though, stuck with in the short term is how it deals with the energy crisis now. And the larger there's a larger answer around net zero, which is that we need all available tools to meet it, to exclude fossil fuels over time. But now, of course, with the disruption in the world gas markets, how we achieve the gas that we currently use, whether we by extracting more from the North Sea, and we're doing a bit more of that, uh, whether by the imports that we can facilitate of liquid natural gas from abroad, that's there in world markets, or indeed other means that will help us through this winter and the immediate short term, while then turning our hand to the bigger issue of bringing non-fossil fuel sources of energy into play, that's all part of what the government's wrestling with. Whether fracking is actually a significant part of any of this, I think is really open to doubt. There was a, a block of exploration done by a number of firms in Lancashire, obviously, but Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, some down in the Weald. There are reserves there. I think the sense is that there's a lot more to be done to understand the geology. Uh, there's a lot more to understand how workable those reserves are. And even with the proposals we're now beginning to see for accelerating infrastructure development, uh, this would take time to put through to invest. Uh, it's hard to see that it's an answer for this winter, how, however much it may be exciting on the floor of the House of Commons. Now, this package is going to cost apparently £60 billion over the next six months alone. The Chancellor has ruled out a windfall tax on energy companies to pay for this. So where's that money coming from and what are the longer term implications? Well, 60 billion, as you say, for the next six months. The market's working guess is that the two packages together, household for two years, business for six months, looks more like 150 billion. But those are incredibly loose estimates and depend enormously, of course, on how gas prices in the real world vary and then how far the government can endeavour to bring down the price of energy here. But whichever way you look at it, those are eye watering figures. Uh, that 150 billion is twice the cost of the furlough scheme under COVID. It's about eight months worth of the NHS. It's about nine months worth of income tax. You know, these are these are large sums, and they are simply at this point being put uh, like a war crisis, if you like, as was used with the COVID and the pandemic, onto the national debt. So at this point, the money is borrowed. If we manage to persuade strangers to be kind enough to us to lend us their money, and then, of course, that is a continuing burden of interest payments over the coming years for which the answers come back to where the government wants to go, which is growth, to achieve the income, to pay the debt, and over time, uh, watch the scale of the debt reduce. The gamble in that is what is the cost of the next shock that we've not yet foreseen. That leads us very nicely onto today's mini-budget, uh, since coming into power, the Prime Minister has made it clear that she's prepared to make unpopular decisions, and the statement today reflects, to varying degrees, her priorities of economic growth, 
the energy crisis and the NHS, all against a background of deregulation. So what do you make of today's announcements? It's been presented by the Chancellor on a very bold, very front foot forward way, making the argument, which is a perfectly fair argument, that growth is necessary. We've had next to no real growth after inflation in wages for 15 years. We haven't had a period like that since the 1860s. We are dealing with a country that if we wish to be as rich as we would like to be, to pay for the services that we want, whether it's defence in Ukraine or the NHS or it's retirement health or, or whatever it is, we need the income to pay for it. And if we don't grow, then we can't do that. Very front foot forward about the means to do it. So we're looking at the argument that the higher taxes are, the more they reduce the return on work, the return on capital, and so on investment and effort possibly deterring it. We're looking at an arguments about easing regulation, particularly to make it easier to proceed with investment and with infrastructure. We're looking at promoting infrastructure, and that's everything from connectivity through to road improvements. We're looking at that as a package to open up growth. And the question then is whether by funding it by debt to the extent that we are, whether that is actually going to lead to a consumer boom, which becomes unsustainable, or genuinely tackles the roots of productivity that could succeed in paying for all of this. Because all those tax cuts are, again, by almost by definition, unfunded. They are worth 50, 60 billion on top of the 150 we've just talked about. This is a bold play on the argument that we can achieve a two and a half percent growth rate year on year over time as the improvements that this is intended to stimulate start coming through and then we have the gap between now and then should that happen. Tell us a little bit about those timescales in in your experience. It takes time for investment to to be made and then to yield results. It takes time. If we look at the, one of the other tools for uh, achieving productivity growth, which is to give people the skills for them to be more productive. And if we look at economic forces, I want to build a building. Uh, I have to get planning permission. I have to then find a contractor who then in these days has to find the materials. And we have to have the window in his diary when he can do the work. Is that going to be before or after the next election? Purely as a simple homespun illustration, these things take time to flow through. But that actually is quite interesting because all too often politics is about the short term. If this genuinely delivers, it's a commitment to a long-term programme, which if it works, would then give decades of sustained benefit to the British economy, but not perhaps too much this side of the election. So, Jeremy, can you cover off the key tax announcements from today's mini-budget, please? Yes. Really, I think for this, there have been four taxes on which significant announcements have been made. So thinking about those that have the greatest effect in the in the rural economy, firstly, national insurance. Many people overlook national insurance for the very considerable take it makes from people's wages and earnings, partly because for employees it's split between employer and and, and employee, but they have reversed the extra one and a quarter percent that was put on for the employees 
and the employers and the self-employed, and also as a charge on dividends, that is to be reversed with effect from 6th November. So really quite near. And as far as I can see, that is retaining the increased threshold that was put in place back in July, precisely to protect the lowest earners. So that is a significant change that will come through. It means that next year's health and social care levy, one and a quarter percent, will also not be applied. And that then means that they're going again to main, while they maintain the funding for the NHS and social care, that will be part of this great debt funding that we're talking about at this stage. The second area then, of course, is income tax, the bit that people are more, more aware of. And for this purpose, a number of changes. The, the one that will affect most people is that the headline rate of 20% as the basic rate will be reduced to 19% with effect from next April. There will be the, for those lucky enough to be earning, have a taxable earning above 150,000, then the 45% additional rate is to disappear. And there are changes then made to the, those people who offer their services as a company. So the IR35 people, and if you're one of them, you probably know what IR35 is. And if you aren't, you probably don't need to know what IR35 is. But it's been a complex and fraught area, and they're proposing pretty much to scrap the recent changes that have been made so that it's it's simpler for the people involved. It's worth saying that the tax changes announced here are basically for England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Scotland makes its own decisions about income tax. It operates on lower thresholds in the main than England. It has slightly higher rates for most taxpayers, and those are entirely decisions for the Scottish government and parliament. So these are decisions for England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. The third area, and the one that actually, of course, the, it was the other headline in this, is around corporation tax. So this is the tax on companies, whereas income tax is for sole traders, for partners, for employees, and so on. And here, there was to have been an increase from 19% to 25% as of next April, and that increase is now not going to happen. So quite a significant reversal of the previous plan. One of the things that's interested me in this, and I think I've not yet quite got to the bottom of it, is that when this was announced, the previous chancellor brought in a 130% super deduction as the investment allowance for corporation tax. So you would actually get more knocked off your tax than you'd actually paid for making the investment. And it looks as though something of that may survive after next April. But I think we need to see what, and if that is a genuine boost to corporate investment, that would be interesting. And then I'll be asking, please, can sole traders and partnerships also have the benefit of this? So let's just wait and see on that one. Finally, for people buying houses, and this is only relevant to house buying, not other property buying, as far as I can see, is a doubling of the nil rate band for stamp duty land tax for England and Northern Ireland, and improved reliefs for, for first-time buyers. They can buy a slightly more expensive house, up to 625000 now, and they can have a nil rate band uh, of up to 425000 on that. So some help in those areas for those people. That applies as of today, 23rd September. And of course, it's, it's not with a cutoff date in the way that we've had previous excitements around SDLT. So again, we wait to see quite what that does. But again, decisions in Wales and Scotland will be for the Welsh and Scottish governments and parliaments. Some pretty significant changes then. And that there's also been a bit of discussion around new infrastructure projects. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on these? 
Yes, they appear to be accelerating the theme of infrastructure as important for the future capacity of the economy. Do we have ports that function? Are we able to have the best broadband we can have? And they're looking to identify a whole run of priority projects, and they're looking then to streamline the processes by which these projects get approval so that they can actually start construction. That's slightly two-edged, of course, for the rural landowner, because many of these things may bring a benefit, but quite a lot of them might be across his land. And it's looking carefully at the rules for all of that. It will be quite an important task over the coming period. They are looking very much at streamlining, simplifying the processes so that uh, they're not as protracted as they've become. And then they've identified with the probability of us having a planning and infrastructure bill to do all of this. So coming through then as the Planning and Infrastructure Act, they've identified 138 different projects as ones that are likely to be among the priority ones. Uh, some 80-odd road schemes, some rail schemes, some gas, carbon capture, hydrogen, obviously Hinkley and, and Sizewell nuclear power stations, Project Gigabit on connectivity, a wide range to facilitate the future growth of the economy. And then one of the jobs we have to ensure is that the property owner who is affected by this is properly looked after clearly going to be a lot of discussion around compulsory purchase and land grabs, maybe one for a future podcast. Very much so. Now, of course, some would argue that this is a budget which rewards the rich and does nothing to help the poor. Do you think there is anything in there for wider society? And does stimulating growth in this way, as unpopular as it might be, do what is needed to turn this ship around? Well, I go back to that description of where we've been with real wages that they haven't grown after inflation since the financial crisis. If that's the position, then everybody is poorer. And we're all arguing about, and the Prime Minister would put it this way, we're all arguing about shares of a, of, of a static or diminishing pie. If there's a bigger pie, if businesses are, are more profitable and successful, if we compete our way in the world with the way the world economy is changing, then we're better able to employ people, we're better able to pay people better, and the world then moves forward. The Prime Minister is very firmly trying to redirect the eye away from arguments about distribution within the economy to there being a larger economy. And again, this comes back to the question of if it succeeds. And if it succeeds, uh, then all will be better. And the funding for the NHS and the enormous problems that Theresa Coffey is, is facing there again, will be easier to fund, and the argument about health and social care, easier to fund. So it, it's a very consciously different approach that we see being taken. It has the capacity to deliver. The issue is whether it realises that capacity. Absolutely. And part of that is talk of these new deregulated investment zones and other infrastructure announcements to come. What are your thoughts on these? Well, I think we're just worth looking at a level of relatively undefined talk about easing of regulation, um, maybe deregulation, but let's just call it easing of, of, of regulation at the moment, particularly as what's been inherited from the European Union is then reviewed and looked at and considered and rewritten to suit circumstances. And of course, this is very largely going to be a process in England, because most of these rules are matters that then lie with the devolved governments in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland then limited in its own way by the protocol. 
looking at where we might be with planning with environmental regulation and so forth across the country. And the talk is there and people are wanting to have the argument as yet about things that haven't yet been defined. So that's to apply across the country and we're promised reviews around business regulation and planning. And I suspect we're going to see something around nutrient neutrality and its impact on housing. We're then looking at the government wanting to look at quite specific areas to be these new investment zones. And this seems to build on the model of the free ports and a Freeport program is already underway, Teesside, obviously, East Midlands Airport as another, the rest are mainly coastal, where there is less regulation, where there is more support, where there are some tax holidays. And the government has gone out to almost 40 local authorities around the country and said, would you want one of these? And quite a number have come back and said, well, it sounds quite interesting. Let's see if we can have some. And these are areas where today's announcement has begun to indicate what you might get. And so firstly, for putting up buildings, you would be able to write the cost of the building off against tax within five years rather than 33. So that's a significant improvement and one we really quite like elsewhere. You are able then to have 100% relief in, first, in the first year on all plant and machinery. So again, that's, that, that, that's a real silly serious stimulus to investment. There would be no business rates on new buildings or the expanded parts of buildings. There would be an exemption from employer's national insurance that where a new person is taken on, there would be no employer's national insurance on their first £50,270 worth of earnings. So again, trying to promote all of this, background funding going to the local authorities around this and some opportunity for some of the benefits of the income to flow back to the local authorities. So a little bit of a stimulus therefore in that for them. So on the face of it, quite a striking package for these areas. If you bought residential and commercial development land in it, you wouldn't pay stamp duty land tax. So it builds up. The challenge about these areas, as with free ports, as with the previous enterprise zones and the various experiments we've had in this over the last 40 or 50 years, is do they create new economic activity or do they simply relocate it? Do I up sticks from where I've been in order to go to these areas to get all the tax reliefs and simply be the same person? Or does this stimulate genuinely new businesses doing genuinely new things that are then competitive with the world? And it'll be interesting to see how they try to make it do more of the positive latter and less of the reshuffle that is the former. Just thinking about that relocation of businesses, is this a threat to rural areas if the new investment is all going to happen in towns? I've only had a very quick look at the list of indicated sites. And of course, we don't know that these are the sites that are going to go forward. Those are the ones that are just being talked about at the moment. I don't think they're necessarily, in that sense, within towns. But there are areas and quite often brownfield areas which it's felt could benefit from this kind of development. So I think the challenge is actually more, does it detract from everybody who's outside? who move, They then move into these areas and then possibly when the areas are done, they move out again. And we've seen that phenomenon before with development zones. And so it is how, how these are designed so they produce genuinely new economic endeavour is going to be a fascinating question. Now, all of this is set against a backdrop of soaring inflation and interest rates. We've got a weak pound, a tightening of bank policy, including sales of government bonds. Taken together, what is the outlook for the rural and wider economy? And what further changes can you see in your crystal ball? 
<laughs> That's a massive question, that is. <laughs> uh, I mean, the first thing to look at is we are now looking at prospectively higher interest rates. Uh, the Bank of England yesterday set bank rate very much on an interim basis. It knew that the financial statement was coming. It knows that a lot of the background that it's working against is very uncertain. Energy prices, very volatile, rising interest rates across the world. And it made a relatively cautious half a percent increase as an interim measure, knowing that was less than many other central banks from America to Switzerland have made. And that partly explains the slight slip in the pound yesterday and today down to $1.12 yesterday, $1.11, I think, this morning. Uh, but we shall see how markets continue to, to react on these things. That clearly then comes with a certain cost. Markets are foreseeing, and it depends again who you talk to this morning, but four and a half, maybe five and a quarter percent interest rates by the middle of next year. The more the bank is successful in containing domestic expectation inflation, the lower those rates will be. But we are also, though, looking at the need to fund this enormous volume of additional borrowing on top of what we borrowed before on the back of the financial crisis, on top of what we've borrowed for COVID, we now have these extra demands to be funded. And of course, other governments are facing similar challenges, going out into world markets and asking for money. And we all in this, as the former government of the Bank of England put it, depend on the kindness of strangers. And if, if more people want to borrow more money and there's only so much of it around, then the price of it rises. So I think that's the first point to pick up. The issues around inflation are clearly there to we're waiting to see. The real hope in all of this is that it stimulates business investment. And if it stimulates business investment, and that's in buildings, it's in plant and machinery, it's in IT, it's in automation, it's also, though, prompting people to invest in their own skills or businesses to invest in the skills of their staff. If we come out of this with a more productive economy, then we will really have achieved something. We have found that rather difficult to do for a number of years, and that points to the scale of the challenge. Certainly a lot of ifs. Just to wind up, if you could pick out three of the key positives for the rural economy and farmers to look forward to, what would those three positives be? Well, the first and immediate positive I would go for, and, I, and it's something that I think is really quite a useful advance, is that for investment by businesses, we have the annual investment allowance. And this says how much investment you can do that you can set off against tax in any one year. And that's in plant and machinery. And that has been very variable in its levels and very volatile in the short term. It has, I think, over the last 15 years or so, been as low as 20,000 and as high as a million. And it's oscillated, it's gone up and down. And had the Chancellor said nothing today, or in the budget in the autumn, that rate was due to slip back from a million down to 200,000 at the end of March. We've been talking to the Treasury about the need for greater stability in that. And I've asked for five years stability, if we can, five years foresight, because the difficulty of investing, knowing when the investment's going to happen, knowing that it's going to come through, making investment for good investment reasons, not just to get a tax relief, all require more stability, more foresight. And it is a great pleasure to see that in this financial statement, he simply said, it's a million, that's permanent. And while, of course, all future governments can change all current decisions and all of that, 
to have greater confidence that there's a million there that a farmer can spend on robotic milking parlors, on automated machinery, on new IT, on the next level of, of robotic machinery, whatever it is, that he doesn't have to try and squeeze that in before next March in the current supply markets in order to get the relief, but knows that he can look at that over a coming period of years and simply make the investment decision when the technology is right, when the money's there to do it, rather than forcing it to fit the, the tax schedule. So that's, that's a very clear win. Next, a number of areas were identified for quite specific announcements coming through later this autumn. And we've heard talk about a number of those, and we've talked about some around planning and, and, and regulation and the like. But one identified there is to have a statement on agricultural productivity. And we have strands. We've talked about this earlier today. We've had strands of this for a while with the productivity elements, the Farm Equipment Technology Fund, the Farming Investment Fund, the Farming Transformation Fund, the prospective slurry investment scheme coming through, and various other pieces of support, including things like the Institute for Agriculture and Horticulture, all looking to try and prompt all of this. But this looks like the promise of a statement actually focused on agricultural productivity this autumn, so still perhaps with two, two years to run of this government, to take this whole project on which a number of us have worked very hard for some, some time, to take it further in the hope that this again can actually help the farming economy do much better on productivity. And by that, we mean the efficiency in which it turns inputs into outputs, by which it makes profit, by which it's competitive. So it's not necessarily about absolute production. It's about the business competence of this. And we've been going almost sideways for three decades in agriculture, pretty much since area payments were introduced. And there are obviously reasons with the basic payment going for people to look harder at their businesses, but it would be good to have some positive stimuli to help people look forward to making their businesses better. And then alongside that, I think if you want your third thing, it would be the serious interest that appears to be being displayed in planning regulation. Planning regulation is as much of an obstacle in the rural economy as it is in the urban economy. We have seen growing experimentation with use of permitted development rights. I, for one, am making, trying to make strongly the case for permitted development rights for the slurry store improvements that people need, planning being a major obstacle to one of the things needed to try and handle agricultural nutrient management and pollution. But we can look at other areas where enabling sensible development that will help the economy to proceed rather than frustrating it in overwhelmed planning departments, would be very beneficial. And I think that's an area where we can do a lot more work with the government. Oh, well, thank you so much for your insight, Jeremy. These are clearly very turbulent times, and as ever, rural businesses should be looking to control those factors over which they have direct influence, aided by specialist advice if necessary. Of course, members of CAAB can gain access to detailed briefing notes with all of the key points on the CAAB website. Jeremy Moody, Secretary and Advisor to the CAAB, thank you once again for joining the CAAB podcast. And there we are. We've reached the end of yet another episode of the CAAB podcast. If you want to keep up to date with all future episodes, or indeed catch up on previous ones, please head to our website or you can subscribe for free on whatever platform you use. Also, if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch by emailing us on enquire at caav.org.uk. 
that's it for today. So until the next time, thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.